The United Nations General Assembly recently suspended Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council, the first time a country has been bounced from the UN premier rights body since 2011, when the nation of Libya under Muammar al-Qaddafi was kicked out. The 193 members of the General Assembly adopted a resolution suspending Russia's membership in the Rights Council for the commission of gross and systematic violation of human rights by a vote of 93 nations to 24. This remarkable reprimand of Russia, which wields much political power at the UN as a permanent member of the Security Council, is a highly symbolic move. Which leads us to the question of what are the short-term and long-term effects of this diplomatic decision. From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Ukraine and Russia today is Kasia Kostraba. Hi, Kasia. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Thomas Johnson. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show, Thomas. All right, just to start things off, guys, and get the juices flowing a little bit, I want to get into the background of the Russo-Ukrainian War and the lead-up to the dismissal of Russia from the Human Rights Council. So what are the Russian claims for going to war in general? So on February 24th, when the invasion began, Russian President Vladimir Putin actually made a speech and he announced that Russia's goal in Ukraine was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, stating that Ukraine needed to protect its citizens from what he called as eight years of bullying and genocide by the Ukrainian government, which is a completely outlandish claim. Do you have anything to add on to that situation, Thomas? Well, I have to say it's a laughable statement to say the best, and Putin's so-called reasons, among them the denazification, seem highly erratic or simply wrong, considering that the current leader of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, is of Jewish descent. That is uh, an important thing to cover when going over the reasons for this war and the later calls to dismissal. I also want to get into the history of the previous conflict between Russia and Ukraine before the outright invasion. Right, so tensions between Russia and Ukraine can go back for centuries. I mean, just constant warring between the Russians and the Ukrainians. However, today's conflict is easiest traceable to 1991 during the fall of the Soviet Union. Ukraine left the Soviet Union in 1991 in August, and then later in December of that year, the USSR completely fell. Since then, Russia has always had its hands in Ukrainian politics, most notably in the 2004 election. Putin-backed Viktor Yanukovych was originally deemed the winner of the 2004 election. However, once proof of meddling was (laughs) exposed, Basically, the Orange Revolution, which is the largest revolution in Ukrainian history, occurred, and new President Viktor Yushchenko was instated, but President Putin's candidate that he backed in 2004, Yanukovych, made his return in 2010 and was elected president, and once in office, he basically went and investigated, quote-unquote, the previous administration for abuse of power, and his whole administration basically led into the 2014 invasion of Crimea and so on. I see. 
So there's a lot of prevalent historical conflict and Russia has always tried to have at least a hand in Ukrainian politics to a certain extent. I also want to cover in this important background the role of NATO as an organization. Do you have anything to say on that, Thomas? Well, the role of NATO as an organization in relation to the Ukraine-Russian crisis is an important role, considering that NATO is part of the reason. We can attribute some of what NATO has done in its work of gathering up some of the post-Soviet states to join NATO, or at least giving them the option to join NATO as being a potential threat to Russian security. Or at least that's what Vladimir Putin has claimed in the past. Doing so... The role of NATO in the lead-up to the Russo-Ukrainian war is, at the very least, semi-significant. I see. Also important to talk about when looking at the invasion itself and the dismissal of Russia from the Human Rights Council is what happened in 2014. Can you speak on that, Kasha? Yeah, so in late 2013, the Revolution of Dignity happened, which was when Yanukovych announced that he was going to refuse to sign a free trade agreement with the EU, and he cited pressure from Russia not to sign. And it sparked the largest revolution since the 2004 Orange Revolution, and Yanukovych fled to Russia. The Ukrainian parliament unanimously voted to remove him and install an interim government, and Russia declared this an illegal coup, and Kuhn sent troops to Crimea within days. So this basically led to the Crimean War in 2014, where Russia annexed Crimea on March 18th, following Crimean leaders that were basically influenced by Russian politicians to declare independence from the Ukraine, and the U.S. and European allies have imposed sanctions, but and they never recognized the annexation. However, to this day, Russia still claims that they own Crimea. So. There's definitely a long history of conflict and in Russia trying to exert its influence over Ukraine before the events leading up to this current episode and what's been happening recently. I also now want to get into the specifically the human rights charges against Russia. So what criminal offenses have the Russians been accused of? Uh, most notably, it's been cited that Russia violates Article 2 of the UN Charter, which says that all members of the UN shall refrain in international relations from the threat or use of force against territorial integrity or political independence of every state, which is seen in Ukraine and they have also been charged with you know numerous human rights abuses. Human Rights Watch is the most notable source documenting what's happening primarily in eastern Ukraine around Kiev, Kharkiv, and the Cherniv regions which like I said are in eastern Ukraine includes very numerous counts of rape, sexual violence, executions whether that be in public or private, and just unlawful violence. And this goes against the Rome Statute in the ICC. Article 8 defines war crimes of the following, which would be willful killing, willfully causing great suffering or serious injury. And then there's also many other violations, such as intentionally attacking cities that are in wartime, basically. So there's a very extensive list of things that Russia has violated here, whether it be recognized or not by them, the rest of the world knows that they're doing all this. Do you think 
that these incidents among the offenses that you have listed are part of a greater Russian military strategy uh, or part of their operation procedure or just things that have happened during the course of the conflict? I mean, while many people think some of these things are sporadic, there have been patterns in towns such as Buha, which is a city in the Kiev Oblast. Men and teenage boys were taken from homes and killed first. There's also been lots of patterns that go back to the annexation of Crimea, with the Donuts and Luhuk's independence. A lot of people think if this keeps going, they're going, Russia's going to try and annex those two regions, such as they did in Crimea. So there are a lot of patterns dating back to 2014 and other international conflicts that Russia's been involved in. I want to go a little bit deeper into that, Kasha, because you mentioned other international ca- campaigns that Russia's been involved in. Uh, there's been comparisons made to what happened in Russia's war in Chechnya against Chechnya and Serbia separatists and Russia's campaign in Syria. So this is a question to both of you, including you, Thomas, of what do you think, is there any similarities between these different conflicts of which Russia's been involved in that indicate a standard operating procedure of Russia? I would say so. There's a lot of similarities in both Chechnya and Syria to today's conflict. Uh, Use of heavy artillery, indiscriminate attacking of urban centers, and just very um, notable patterns. Yes, I'm afraid I have to agree with Kasha here. There is a significantly distinguishable pattern in what Russia has been doing. The torturing and execution of civilians, especially in Bucha, which is what led to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfeld, to introduce the proposal that would strip Russia of its seat, is something that's been mirrored in past conflicts and is something that I'm afraid we're going to continue seeing from the actions of the Russian military. Which would indicate a greater pattern of just a standard operating procedure by the Russian military that is in clear violation of the laws of armed combat and just in general very disheartening to observe from an international and a human rights perspective. You mentioned some of your sources early on, Kasha, including the Human Rights Watch. What has been the role of groups like the Human Rights Watch and human rights groups in covering the invasion? Uh, Human Rights Watch is extremely notable in many situations, including what's going on in Ukraine. They've been important because they, you know, put boots on the ground. They conduct interviews with those afflicted both in Ukraine. They've also, I've read interviews from refugees who are in Warsaw, in Bucharest, stuff like that. So they really provide people who are outside of this situation with a really good and firsthand account of what is going on by providing these interviews. They also, people will literally send them videos of atrocities that are going on and, you know, they'll confirm it. There's other organizations like Amnesty International. They publish yearly reports that outline human rights violations. They have a list for every country. So the You know, I was looking at the list for Russia from last year, and it was extremely extensive and horrifying. It's another thing to view this situation from an outside perspective. It's also another to be actually involved in the ground viewing those events and what has happened. I want to go back to the international side just for a moment to look at the role of the United Nations, of which, because we're speaking about Russia being kicked off the Human Rights Council for the violations. 
I mentioned the total vote proposal earlier, 93 to 24 nations. Was there any nations who abstained and didn't vote at all? There were a total of 58 abstentions in the vote. Among those who abstained, it includes countries such as India, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Qatar, Kuwait, Iraq, Pakistan, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Cambodia. Of course, this comes from news.un, which is the United Nations news source. I want to ask a follow-up question, Thomas, of this, uh, just a a kind of speculation type question. I've done my own prior research on the situation, looked at it. A lot of those nations you listed have been taking lots of military weapons or get their military weapons from Russia. Do you think that has any role in them abstaining from voting on kicking Russia out of the Human Rights Council? Oh, of course. It makes the most sense. If It makes no reasonable sense for them to vote to kick Russia off of the Human Rights Council when they are the ones who Russia is providing with either funding or weapons or some kind of support. Why would one want to remove an ally? On the other hand, why they didn't vote against, that's another question. If I had to theorize why they did not vote against but simply abstained, it is because they wanted to keep their own positions within the UN or to have some sort of neutrality within the UN. And not have it go on their record that they voted against kicking Russia out of the Human Rights Council when it seems a lot of the support in the UN is was, was indeed in favor of the dismissal. Was there any support for Russia within the United Nations? Oh, there was a decent amount of support because 24 were against. Of these 24, I'll just list off a few of the more notable, including Russia itself, China, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, Syria, and Vietnam were some of those who had just voted against kicking Russia off of that part of the UN. We spoke earlier on Russia's standard operating procedure in international conflicts. However, there's Russia's record of human rights abuses domestically. Do you both have anything to relay on the crackdown on anti-war sentiment as well within Russia currently against the war? Yeah, protests, as soon as this happened, broke out in cities such as St. Petersburg and Moscow. Of course, you know, lots of Russian civilians who are against the war in Ukraine However, the government sent out plenty of police and arrested thousands of people. I mean, they arrested children, you know, 13-year-olds who may have been out in the street, who may know even a little bit about the situation. And they've sentenced plenty of people to 15 years in jail for protesting the war. So there's plenty of crackdown on it, just as there has been with any protests, as we saw a few years ago with the Navalny protests, the same situation happened. So. Well, beyond that, they've also been closing down independent news sources. Looking at something from the Washington Post, which talked about Novaya Gazeta, which was the last independent newspaper in Russia, which had, uh, which was suspended, suspending its publishing operations until the end of the war between Russia and Ukraine. This came after actions from Russia, which had put into place such laws that would ban words such as war, invasion, and attack via the new censorship laws. In addition, anything related to publishing that would discredit the military has been banned. So Russia has been cracking down quite heavily on any anti-war sentiment or even on publishers trying to get out any version of the truth that goes against the government. 
in a sense, cracking down not only on any independent news source coming out of the country, but as you mentioned, Kasha, even arresting children that may have been out on the street where these protests were occurring. That is a very sealing the nation are trying to prevent any and all opposition to the war in Ukraine. Looking at the international reaction to the decision, I mentioned in the intro earlier of Syria was another example of being kicked out of the Human Rights Council. Thomas, have any other nations besides Syria and now Russia been kicked off the Human Rights Council in the past? Well, Libya is the only country to truly be suspended from the 47-member Geneva-based council. It was suspended in 2011 after the violent crackdown against protesters led by uh, Muammar Gaddafi. This was after accusations, of course, of genocide and other such issues. Who originally introduced the proposal to the UN? Was it the United States? The United States did introduce the proposal to the UN. It was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, which I said before was Linda Thomas-Greenfeld. She believes that they sent a clear message that the suffering of the victims and the survivors will not be ignored, but she was the one that put in place the proposition for the removal from the United Nations Assembly. And was able to get it passed, not to mention uh, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, as you mentioned, also visited Seton Hall not that long ago on campus Mm -hmm. for an event with the School of Diplomacy. Beyond just that, the general reaction by the United States and Western Europe has been united in condemning this and supporting uh, Russia's dismissal. You would say that, Thomas? Oh, I would certainly say that. Even Poland, which has had issues taking in refugees in the past and had even built walls at one point, I believe they're still maintaining these walls to keep out certain groups of refugees, they have been letting in vast amounts of Ukrainians building housing, for them, setting up places where they can live with Polish people, where they can get in contact with relatives. So there is a wide reaction by the United States and Western Europe to help the Ukrainians as much as possible. On the on the flip side of that, I want to ask a question, Thomas. There has been some opposition to Russia's dismissal as well from other nations talking about setting a dangerous precedent. Do you want to go into that, of that sentiment expressed right there? Of course, Drew. I'll talk a bit about that. Mexico uh, abstained from the, bo- from the vote, as noted by uh, foreign policy uh, in the United Nations Russia Human Rights Council article. Uh, Mexico, which abstained on the vote, said that shunning a UN member was counterproductive. To exclude, to suspend is not a solution, according to Juan Ramon uh, de la Fuente, Mexico's UN ambassador. He believes that even in the midst of war, old channels should be maintained for a dialogue with Russia. And while I have to disagree with part, I do agree that channels should be maintained for dialogue. However, I believe that removing them from the UN Security Council does uh, send a clear message. Beyond that, China's envoy, Zhang Jun, expressed support for Ukraine's uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity, but voted against the resolution, which was technically formally introduced by Ukraine. He warned that the resolution would aggravate divisions among UN member states and deprive Russia of its legitimate seat on the Rights Council. He said it would simply add fuel to the fire. And you mentioned earlier the opportunity for dialogues being cut. I also agree with your notion that this was more of a message to be sent. 
And also I feel there are other opportunities for dialogue between Russia and other nations as well, in which that can continue, even as this conflict is going on. We have similarities. Is there any similar situations to what is currently going on that has the UN been involved in? Well, Mr. Uh, and you'll have to excuse me for this pronunciation of the name, but Mr. Kislitsvia, part of the Ukrainian delegation, mentioned that the vote took place on the anniversary of the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, and the Ukrainian ambassador, of course, drew parallels with this dark page in recent history and what was going on today. What he made careful note of was that the genocide in Rwanda was largely due to the indifference of the world's community when the UN did not respond to warnings in the UN Security Council and in the General Assembly, something which we can see is different than today as members of the UN are responding to the issue at hand quite suddenly and severely. In a sense, maybe the UN has taken swift decisive action in a way that uh, is different than past situations for sure. I also want to speak to a topic that is both domestic and international uh, with this conflict in the role of the Russian Orthodox Church. Recently it seems the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church declared the invasion by the Russian government a holy war. Can you go more into the sentiments and the reasoning behind that Kasha? Yeah, so um, the Russian Orthodox Church has been um, very allied with President Putin or very friendly with President Putin um, about certain issues, notably about um, homophobia and just general anti-LGBT stuff. On March 6th, he delivered a sermon and he said, and I quote, in the Donbas region, there is rejection of the so-called values that are offered today by those who claim world power. And he specifically said that the West is, you know, allied with Ukraine because, uh, you know, on their stance, you know, regarding human rights that we mentioned earlier. And so they're kind of using this as a ploy to say, hey, there should be a war because they disagree with fundamental things such as, you know, the rights of LGBT people. And trying to make this a war of values rather than just an outright invasion that is violating national sovereignty and it's something that is the whole United Nations Charter and the post-World War II world has been set against. The reaction of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church because uh, there's been instances of switching allegiances to Constantinople. Do you both have anything to report on that? I can comment on this. So there has been a great deal of switching allegiances to Constantinople, not only in Ukraine, but in different countries around the world. Now, some countries, which I can speak of, such as the Netherlands and in Lithuania, had connections to the Moscow Patriarchate, um, which was which is Patriarch Kirill. Now. They have recently been switching more towards the Patriarch in Constantinople, one who has been notoriously outspoken against Kirill and against the idea of declaring this a holy war in any way or form. In fact, it has helped to splinter or split the Orthodox Church quite a lot. Uh, especially between the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church in particular. Ukrainian Orthodox priests that previously paid devotion or loyalty to the Patriarch Kirill. 
Yeah, I can also say that around 300 priests, most of which were inside Russia, signed a petition against the war, after of which three Lithuanian priests who were outspoken critics of the war were fired. In a way, uh, the politics infecting the role of the Russian Orthodox Church, or in a sense, the Russian government using the Russian Orthodox Church to legitimize uh, their involvement in their invasion of Ukraine. Since we've covered a lot of ground, guys, I want to get just some final thoughts off of all that we've covered today due to on Russia's dismissal from the Human Rights Council. So first off, I want to ask you both, what are the, both the short-term and long-term effects of this move to boot Russia off of the Human Rights Council? Well, I can tackle this question to start off with. The short-term and long-term effects of this are going to be massive. Now, Russia, of course, does have that guaranteed seat on the Human Rights Council that you mentioned earlier, Drew. So the fact that one the could... Sec the sorry to stop you, Thomas. The Security Council. The Security Council. Thank you, Drew. So the long-term effects of even removing one partially from the council is certainly something to consider because it can be used as a threat against other countries and provided that it actually works against Russia as a deterrence or something to get their attention, it's certainly something that can be used in the future. On the other hand, if it proves ineffective against Russia, it may continue to prove that way against future countries and future actions. Now, the short-term effects are, of course, we've seen large outspoken cries from Russia and Russia supporters like China, or Russian allies like China, forgive me. But for the short term, I don't feel like this is going to do much. It may certainly grab Putin's attention, but I don't think it will affect his planning or strategy much. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kasha? Yeah, I mean, I would have to agree with Thomas, especially regarding the short term effects. I mean, it's been, I believe, two weeks since this has happened. And, you know, that seems very short, but in war, that's a long time and not much has changed. So while I do think it's a very good symbolic move, there's still a lot to be done to get Russia to stop. Yeah. One thing that Ambassador Thomas Greenfield mentioned when she came to Seton Hall was this is a symbolic move, but it shows the greater move by the United States and other countries to isolate Russia due to their actions in Ukraine within the United Nations. And perhaps this is the starting point for that process to continue. Thank you both, Thomas and Kasha. This has been a great episode, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Drew. It's always good to be here. Yeah, thank you again for having us. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Peter Eggerding. Hi, Peter. Hey, Drew. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for coming on. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So the headlines we have are that the French election went to President Emmanuel Macron and President Zelensky and his updates from Ukraine this week. Some very important topics to cover today, then. Let's start with the recent French election. Sure. So this Sunday, the French people elected the current President Emmanuel Macron for a second term. His decisive victory over far-right candidate Marie Le Pen marks an important shift in French political discourse. Macron's unique status as a moderate leader in a polarized country has led to criticisms from each side of the political aisle. His defeat of Le Pen, who advocated for policies like outlawing the hijab, is one of the most visible rebukes of a far-right party in recent history. Macron has seemed like an unpopular leader throughout his time as president, which is why his victory over Le Pen is especially noteworthy. In the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this is also an important victory for the West, as Macron has promised to double down on EU support of the Ukrainian government. 
an election that held great importance for the future of France and Europe in general. And you mentioned updates on Ukraine? Yep. In the last few weeks, Russian forces have all but moved out of Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and instead focused their military strength on the eastern regions of Ukraine that they claim belong to Russia. One notable location of the Ukrainian defense comes from the city Mariupol, where the constant shelling and destruction have all but leveled the entire city. There is one bastion of Ukrainian defense left, but it seems that the city will fall soon. Furthermore, there has been recent discovery of another mass grave site that Russia has created, which has pushed the international community to condemn Russia's war crimes and renew the call for investigation into Russia's wartime practices. This pivot away from Kiev has marked President Putin's realization that the entirety of Ukraine may not fall. Thank you very much for coming on, Peter. Thank you, Drew. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Deng, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rakulia, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.